0: A question for you as we start, would you rather be wilting or thriving? The answer, of course, is obvious. You'd rather be thriving. Nobody wants to wilt. It's uh, interesting to me that it's not just plants that live in the tension between wilting and thriving. I'm sorry to say that if you come to our house, most of the plants are wilting. Neither my wife nor I are very good at keeping plants alive in the house. She's incredible at keeping plants alive outside, but I think Mother Nature gets a big assist on that one. The plants in our house um, always look a little bit worse for wear. They are more of the wilting kind than the thriving kind, but it's not just plants who have to deal with this tension. Have you um, ever encountered a wilting organization? Maybe you think about a time that you had a job in an organization that was very clearly wilting. You almost always know it. Um, Sometimes a wilting organization has a smell to it. You can almost smell the death creeping in around the borders of that organization, and the reason for that is it is a wilting organization. Um, Perhaps you have um, bumped into a wilting wife. Have you ever been out with a couple perhaps on a double date or maybe you had a gathering at your house back when that was permitted and you were introduced to a couple for the very first time and you could tell within minutes that there was something about the wife that was just not quite right. There was a sadness about her eyes. There was a droop to her shoulder. She is a wilting wife and uh, you never really know the reason, but you know that there's something that is wrong. Have you um, ever found yourself dealing with wilting passion? You have a task, you're supposed to do it. Perhaps you've been promoted at work. You're really excited initially. And then over the course of weeks, perhaps you begin to deal with difficulty. Maybe your boss isn't as nice as you thought they were when they interviewed you and you find your passion beginning to wilt. It's a really, really difficult place to find yourselves in. I talked a moment ago about wilting wives. Um, You'll recognize a wilted husband by the way he walks. His shoulders are kind of hunched over. He looks bent in upon himself, tends to not say very much. And a wilted husband almost always comes out of years of dysfunction, of years of being ignored, of years of being overridden by his wife. A wilted man is a horrible thing to see. Maybe this week as you head out into the world, count the number of wilted people that you see. I do this all the time. I'm standing in line somewhere, and I'm always watching people. And, of course, I don't know for sure if they would, you know, qualify as a wilted person. Who am I to know? But I guess. I look at their countenance. I look at their face. I look at the way they carry themselves. If they're talking with somebody, I listen to the way that they converse. You can almost always tell when something is broken in somebody by reading those cues. Maybe this week in one moment when you're out for coffee, thank God we're able to do that again, right? When you're waiting in line at your favorite grocery store, count the wilted people. And when you see a thriving person if you find yourself in conversation, maybe get up the guts to ask them why. You ever done that with somebody? They're clearly happy. They're clearly full of joy. They clearly have a vitality that maybe you don't have in that moment. And we almost never ask them, like, what is the source of your joy? How come, think right now of somebody that you know who's really smiley, really happy all the time. Why are you so happy? What what is the root of your joy? I encourage you, if you um, meet a thriving person this week, to ask them why. I'm willing to bet that um, most of their answers will sound something like the last two verses of Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O oh deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tents. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Psalm 52, a few things about it real quick as we start. Psalm 52 is a psalm of David. So not all the psalms are written by David, but this one was. Uh, It's called a maskil, which means it's a psalm that has to be played with some skillfulness. Um, He wrote it, and specifically he wrote it um, in relation to a really ugly chapter in his story. He wrote it in response to um, Doeg the Edomite killing 85 of the priests of the Lord one time in front of King Saul. King Saul was really angry at Abiatar the priest and of the other priests because they had helped David when he was hiding from King Saul. This is back in the days when Saul was busily trying to capture David and to kill him. And so David sought refuge with Abiatar and Abiatar the priest gave him refuge, fed him food, took care of his needs. Doeg the Edomite happened to be there that day and then reported back to Saul on this. And this account is contained in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And Saul is enraged at Abiatar and he says, you will die this day. And he commanded, his soldiers to kill the priests of God, and his soldiers refused to do it. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was not even a Jew, okay, the Edomites were kind of half Jew, half Gentile. King Herod from Jesus' time was an Edomite, okay? Edom, they were red-skinned, or their skin had a reddish tinge to it. Edomites, they were different from the Jews. And so Doeg, the Edomite, says, I'll do it, And so he single-handedly, if you can imagine, kills 85 of God's priests that horrible day. He then goes on to sack the city of Nov, which was the city of the priests. So this is an extremely dark chapter in David's story. And he writes this Psalm 52 in response to what had happened. Let me uh, break down the structure of the Psalm for you. Verse 1 In verse 1, the love of God sets the tone, and I find it remarkable, and don't miss this, that David, in the midst of this terrible moment, has the wherewithal, I wonder if it even came from him or if it came from the Spirit of God at work within him, he has the wherewithal to point to the love of God which lasts forever, even in the midst of the slaughter of 85 of God's priests and the sacking and destruction of their city. So verse 1 roots us in the love of God, which is where we need to be rooted. Remember that the love of God sets the tone. Verses 2 through 4 outlines what evil does. Here David is describing what Doeg the Edomite did. Verse 5 talks about how God will react to what Doeg the Edomite did. This is a recurring theme, right, in all Psalms that deal with um, dark or evil things. the, The writer almost always says, but God, pointing to that day when God will come back, to make all things right. So that's what's happening in verse 5, how God will react. In verses 6 through 7, the psalmist describes how the righteous will react when they see what God does. And then in verses 8 through 9, we come to the destiny of the righteous, which is where we're going to camp today. In verses 8 through 9, the destiny of the righteous. Your destiny is to thrive like a green tree. That is your destiny. Your destiny is decisive. This is point number one for our purposes today. If you uh, have your Bibles, you can look at verse 8. You should be able to see it on the screen behind me. Verse 8, but I am like. I want you to here notice that David is making a decision in the midst of a dark moment. Okay, he's just outlined this terrible thing that has happened. And then he says these powerful words, but I, but I, you always have a decision to make no matter what happens you still have a decision to make you've heard it said perhaps that you can't control what happens to you but you can control how you respond and like all deep truths we know intuitively that that is the case perhaps you can think about a moment in your life when something happened to you that you could, got, could not control, I'm thinking about this pandemic. I'm so happy to have you here, by the way. It's so fun to actually go between the camera, which is my audience at home, and our small audience here. And it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 people. But I have been preaching to empty rooms for 15 weeks. So I love you. And thank you for being here tonight to help me do a good job. It's just so, so fun to take the first step back into this new normal. You know that it's true. You can't control what happens to you. None of us invited the coronavirus into our lives. None of us wanted to have to change our lives radically for the last 15 weeks. Nobody wants to do what we have to do as we slowly integrate back into a new normal that's not really going to be very normal at all for God knows how long. We can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we respond. Somebody at home say amen. You always have agency. Like I tell my football players who I coach at Centennial High School, this is one of the consistent Pastor Todd, Coach Todd mantras. I say to them almost every game, multiple times a game, usually I'm shouting it, I say, make a decision to be great. Make a decision to be great, moment by moment, play by play in your own lives. Continuously make a decision to be great. And you know how often we forget to be great? We're assailed by the trouble of the moment and we forget the point. The point, of course, is to live in such a way that God gets much glory, we get much joy, so that through our transforming lives, much good is done to the world. But how often do you give up in the midst of a difficult moment, when instead of giving up, you could make a decision to be great? And I'm not suggesting that it's ever easy to do. All great things require work. Make a decision to be great because you have agency. But I, how much time have you spent wasted in indecision? Be really honest with yourself. I know that trouble can freeze us. Next time trouble tries to freeze you, don't let it have the upper hand. Make The next decision, next time disaster strikes, hear the words of David in your ears, but I, you're gonna need to be decisive if you want to thrive because that's your destiny, to thrive and point number two, to persevere. We're still here in verse eight, but I am like a green olive tree. This is so beautiful. I couldn't wait to tell you this part of the story. But I am like a green olive tree. You know what green olive tree is in the Hebrew? But I, ani, kezayit raanan. Kezayit like an olive, raanan, full of joy. But I am a joyful olive. Put that on a T-shirt, or rather, write it in your heart. kezayit raanan. Leganen is the word for joy. You've heard me talk to you about it? To dance and spin around. That's what joy means. I am, you are, we are like a joyful olive. The implication here in the Hebrew, Jewish people love olives. They love olive trees. They love olive oil. They put that on everything. Okay, it's just true. The implication in Hebrew, when you say you're young and flourishing like an olive tree, you're young, you're flourishing. You are a symbol of life and perseverance. Don't, do you you feel the missional implication that's here? If you are a joyful olive, you are a symbol to the world of life and perseverance. So taken that way, you can evangelize the world with your joy. You can evangelize the world with the way in which you flourish, and you can evangelize the world with the way in which you persevere. Why persevere? Because that is one of the key things that olive trees do. I grew up in Israel. There are olive trees everywhere, and many of them are very old. You can go to the remains of the Garden of Gethsemane today in Jerusalem. This is where, of course, Jesus spent his last night before his crucifixion praying in the garden with his disciples who kept falling asleep, just like I would have been, just like you probably would have been. And what's mind-blowing about the Garden of Gethsemane is that there are trees today in the Garden of Gethsemane that were there on that night that Jesus sojourned in the garden. No word of a lie, there are olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane today that are 2,000 years old. And what's incredible about them is they still yield fruit. And yes, your pastor did steal an olive from one of those trees one time when the guard wasn't looking. Olive trees flourish for a very long time. You are a flourishing green olive tree. You are a symbol of life and perseverance. This reminds me of my grandparents who were still flourishing in their 90s. My grandma Kerr on my mom's side died at 102, and until about 100 years of age, she was still flourishing and full of joy. My grandparents on my father's side both lived into their early 90s. And I'm here to testify that even on their deathbed, they were still flourishing. As we stood in their rooms, as they lay on their deathbed, my sister with her guitar, me with my voice raised high as we worship Jesus, you could see the joy of the Lord in their eyes. And you could sense it giving them strength. One of the biggest proofs of the validity and the effectiveness of the way of Jesus I ever saw was how my grandparents aged into death. I'm here to testify that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control did not desert them in their old age. Somebody bless the Lord. I saw it in their eyes. I heard it in their speech. In fact, even when my grandma Cantalon could no longer speak, she looked at me, pointed me right in my eyes, and said this. She put her fist at me and went like this which I understood to mean that she wanted me to keep preaching and to keep doing what God had built me to do, which is kind of why I'm doing this today, because my flourishing grandma told me to while she was on her deathbed. You are that kind of tree if you are God's friend, a joyful green olive tree who, point number three, lives with God. This is beautiful. But I am like a green olive tree. Somebody shout in the house of God. That's where I am. That's where you are. I am a green olive tree. Receive it. That's for you today. Might be for some of you in here today. That's who you are. You've been told you're somebody else. Don't believe the hype. Okay. I wanted to sing the song. Don't believe the hype. It's a sequel, right? You in the house of God and if that's true where else would you rather be the answer is of course nowhere if I can be in the house of God that's where I want to be baby that's that's where I want to be that's it if you tell me I have a place in the house of God I'm basically good and hear me that's what the psalmist is saying to you today you're in the house of God You tell me what that might do to all of your insecurities. If you received and finally believed deeply that you are actually in the house of God. That's where you dwell. What would knowing that you live, receive it, you live in the house of God, what would that do to all your fears? What would that do to all of your anxieties? I'm willing to bet that they would all be dealt with as you came to recognize and cling to where you live and with whom. We've just spent 15 weeks never leaving our house, always living with the people we're living with. It can be a trial. And somebody said, amen. Right? Especially for those of you watching at home with young kids. I understand. I feel your pain. Okay? It can be a trial. But imagine if you were living in God's house with God himself. I am willing to bet that that would be the best 15 weeks you ever spent. Say it to yourself today and let it change your life. I live in God's house. First time something difficult comes your way this week, say to yourself, I live in God's house. (laughs) First time the devil comes to try and steal your joy, look him right in the eye and say, not today, devil. I live in God's house. I mean, hello, help me out in this. I live in God's house. That's my home. That's where I live, and that's where I'm staying. Point number four, secure in God's love forever. Still in verse eight, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Remember the rap song? Forever, ever, ever, ever? Yeah, forever, ever. That is where you will be forever, and you can trust in the steadfast love of God forever. So, everybody take a deep breath and woosaw something. If you don't know what I'm talking about, direct message me and I'll tell you the movie I'm talking about, because I probably shouldn't say it publicly. Right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Lamentations 3, 22. And how many of you know what I know? That steadfast love, what kind of love is steadfast love? Receive it, Will Gamble. Steadfast love is the best kind of love. In fact, it's the only kind of love. (laughs) Steadfast love is the best kind of love. And you know what steadfast love is called? It's called grace. You're welcome. That's literally the word here in the Hebrew. Chesed. Chesed. Grace steadfast love and that's the kind of love that God showed you when the Father sent the Son to go to the cross to suffer and die in your place for your sins he paid the penalty that you should have paid he paid the price that you could never pay and the chastisement for your peace was laid upon him and Jesus Christ God the Son made flesh died in your place and the third day he rose again victorious defeating in his body the power of Satan's sin, death, and hell forever. My dear friends, he did what we could never do. (laughs) He did what we could never, ever do. You don't deserve it. You couldn't earn it, and yet it's yours, which is why you've, point number five, uh, decided to be grateful because God is the active partner. Moving on to verse nine. I will thank you forever because you have done it i mean somebody dwell on that for just a moment what are we going to do i will thank you forever why because because you have done it god has done what needs doing i'll say it again god has done what needs doing which is why we thank him thankfulness gratitude comes from the realization that god has done everything that needs doing i will thank you forever because you have done it why thank him forever because of the magnitude of what he's done somebody give him praise he's done so much that my thanksgiving overflows from a heart of gratitude even in times of brokenness and despair you can look back to the cross and see that his goodness has never failed you And that His mercies are new every morning. And that because the tomb is empty in Jerusalem, you can get up out of bed today and do what you have to do because God has done it. It's because of what He's done that we are thankful. I'm here to tell you something I've told you before. Perhaps you're hearing it from me for the first time today as you tune in online from somewhere in Europe. Gratitude is godliness. It's no more complicated than that. Gratitude is godliness. So never stop doing it. Never stop doing the work of gratitude because God has done it. Your destiny is already done because God did it. So like Pastor Todd likes to say, celebrate, celebrate because he's already done it. You could pull in another quote here. He already done did it. He already done, did it. It's done. So all you need to do is celebrate. Give him praise from a grateful heart. And do it, mind you, point six. Final point here. Band, you can get ready to join me. We're already done. You can celebrate patiently because of God's goodness while hanging out with a bunch of other grateful, happy green trees. Um, Verse nine, part B. Get a load of this. I will wait for your name. For it is good in the presence of the godly. You're going to have to learn patience if you want to thrive. Okay, don't miss that in the text. I will wait for your name. You're going to need to learn patience if you want to thrive. Can I um, invite you to participate in one of my favorite life hacks? Start standing in your coronavirus lines without your cell phone. Because when you have your cell phone in your coronavirus lines, what are you doing? You're on your cell phone, you're scrolling, you're watching things, you're looking at things, you're interacting with people, which can be fine most of the time. But if you are in a line that's going to be at least 10 to 15 minutes long, like it is for me at Market Fresh every Saturday morning, if you leave your phone intentionally in the car, then you will have nothing to do as you stand in that line, but meditate on the beauties and the glories of Christ. And I'm here to tell you that that one simple life hack, leaving your phone to the side for one coronavirus lineup that you have to face this week will help you make much of Christ in a way that perhaps you have been missing. And as you meditate on his goodness and as you meditate on his beauty, you will find yourself learning the art of patience, of waiting for God. And what are you waiting for? You're waiting for his name. I just want to remind you, because I really care about you, that you need to stake your claim on that wonderful name. Why? Because his name and his name alone is good. It's the only good name there is. The name of God, of course, is speaking to us underlyingly about the reputation of God. Receive it. That's for you today. Stake your claim on God's reputation. Don't base your life on your reputation or on the reputations of others, but trust in his good name. Trust in his reputation. So wait on God with your dearest friends. I will wait for your name, for it is good. Verse 9b, in the presence of the godly with your beloved friends. And I know this has been hard as we've been forced apart, but as you begin to be able to join together with those you love in the coming weeks and months, do it with a heart of gratitude. Do it with your eyes on Christ. Do it in the presence of the godly. And I already told you that godliness is gratitude. So make sure that you surround yourself with a bunch of joyful, grateful people. You want to thrive? Be decisive full of life and perseverance like a happy olive who lives with God, secure in his love forever, determines to be grateful because God is at work learning to be patient, counting on his reputation while hanging out with a bunch of other grateful happy green trees.